0: Well, let's pray and let's give the Lord his time and the word to just do great things in us. So, Lord, your word is, is powerful and wonderful in every way. Uh, Lord God, you, you choose to, uh, Lord, you didn't have an infinite number of pages you wrote for us. It was just very limited, God, and this chapter was given to us. Uh, and, and so, Lord, we want to we dive in and we want to see what you have for us, Jesus. Uh, because Lord, every word testifies of you. Every, every part of this is filled with your spirit, God. And so we want to understand your spirit, or we want to have fellowship and communion with you, uh, Lord, our Maker and our God and the one who's redeemed us and bought us back with your blood. And Lord, it's so good. It's so good to just be here and be in this uh, with this group of believers. And Lord, thank you so much for um, this time. We ask you to speak to us. Amen. Alright, so, open up to the book of Zechariah, chapter 6. I was about to say Ezekiel, I don't know why, but Zechariah, chapter 6, is where we're at. And tonight's message is called Dreading the Judge. And uh, people, just so you know, we're going to be talking about judgment and hell and all kinds of scary, heavy things tonight. And it's, it's funny because people, that gets people kind of like, oh, oh what am I going to hear? And it kind of makes me uncomfortable. Um, I, I remember thinking about Jonathan Edwards gave the sermon, and Jonathan Edwards was a real dry preacher, but a very good, very deep teacher, preacher, back in the early 1800s, or sometime in the 1800s or 1900s, and uh, he gave this message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Have you ever heard about that? So if you go back and read it, it's quite astonishing uh, the, what he did. And he, he actually, he, he read it from a script. He, he wrote out a sermon and he read it from a script, which was common to him. But he, he made sure that he did not look up at the people at any point because he didn't want to add any emotion to this sermon because it was so powerful and so scary, the things he was talking about. So he, he delivered the sermon to a packed by hundreds of people, okay? And, um, but before the sermon was even done, people were crying out in the, in the aisles. And they were hanging on to the pews and crawling on the floor for fear that they were going to be thrown down into hell right then in the middle of church. And that was how powerful that this sermon was. And, and there's stories of just hundreds of people coming to, the, to know the Lord through this, um, through this sermon on hell. And hell isn't something that we talk about much in our culture. In fact, it's pretty—it's um, pretty made fun of. You know, people don't take it seriously. Oh, you know, they say you can go there, and, and this, that, and the other. It's just—it's just a flippant thing in our culture. Um, and and see, hell is just the the place personification of judgment. Judgment is the real issue, the real topic, and the real thing that people have a problem with today is judgment. Okay, so we've studied, we've learned a lot as we've been going through Zechariah and this restoration project that God is on, that God loves you. He loves you. We've we've talked about that a lot. And, And if you come to church, you'll hear that God loves you. And tonight we'll hear that God loves you, but God is just. And those two things seem like they go against each other there's a bumper sticker out there um, that's so dumb I'm just prefacing it, so you, you don't think I believe in this, but it says, if judging others is a sin, then is God going to hell? <laughs> it's an actual bumper sticker I saw it okay so man that's the that's the mindset of the world. they are so deceived into thinking that there's no judge. They don't want to believe there's a judge. They don't want to believe that they're going to be judged. They don't want to believe it. And so they make up little funny things that they think, oh, isn't it funny? There's no judge that's going to judge people. Well, how about this question? You ever had someone ask you this? Was was 9-11 God's judgment on America? Hmm. We'll come back to that one in a little while. Well, we have to teach about judgment in the church. You know, we have to. It doesn't make us popular, but um, we've never been accused of winning any popularity contest anyway, so why not just teach the truth? How about that? I mean, we're not too popular. So <laughs> that's cool. But um, many people are really cool with the hippie Jesus. Have you noticed that? Hippie Jesus. He's kind of popular. Everyone likes the, the communist... Uh, minivan driving hippie Jesus who d- doesn't believe in paying your taxes and whatever. Just the Jesus that's all love and let's all get along and and pretty much just everything you can think of that's liberal. And <laughs> so that, that's the hippie Jesus. And he's real popular in the world. People say all the time, Jesus is cool. Jesus is awesome. I could have I lived with Jesus. It's all his followers. I can't stand. And I understand that sentiment. But Jesus is not just this hippie Jesus. In fact, he wasn't a hippie Jesus when he was on earth, but beside the point, that's not the Jesus we have revealed in the book of Revelation, is it? When we finally see Jesus in Revelation, he has eyes of fire, feet of brass, which brass is the metal in the Bible of judgment. He's coming as a judge. So he steps down as brass. He's got eyes of fire. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth, slaying all of his enemies. That's Jesus in the book of Revelation. And so you have this totally different picture of Jesus and it just, uh, it's not as attractive to the world. The world isn't as drawn to this idea of judgment. But we're going to find out tonight that his judgment is almost just as good, amazing as his love. And the way they work together is so wonderful. So, uh, in a... In a um, a poll conducted by the Times Mirror Company, it says more than four out of five Americans agree that we, be all, we will all be called before God at judgment to, uh, one day to answer for our sins. Do you? Wow. So it's actually, even though there is this cultural idea, and maybe in the media it's made fun of, people in their hearts, they know that they're going to be judged, that there's judgment coming. They know that sin is going to be judged and they're right. So, it's true, both for believers and unbelievers, but we're going to kind of differentiate how that takes place at the end as well. W.C. Fields, you ever heard of W.C. Fields? He was an actor, kind of a fat bald, in black and white movies. I've never seen the black and white, but I've heard they existed back in the day. I don't know. I'm not that old. (laughs) Um, He was an actor, and just before his death, uh, a friend, a believer uh, that was a friend of his was, went to his hospital rooms and was, suffi- was surprised to find him reading the Bible because he wasn't prone to uh, read the Bible. He didn't really like it that much. And, and he asked Fields what he was doing with that Bible and Fields replied, I'm looking for loopholes. A lot of people don't understand what judgment is. They don't understand there's not loop. There's no loopholes. And God has the right to judge, and that God will judge. Okay, and I'm going to do one more story before we get into our text because I just—it's an awesome story, and it's helping us get in this mindset of understanding. The following incident is vouched for by a Church of England clergyman who knew all the circumstances. Dun dun dun. A young woman who had been brought up in a Christian home and who had often been very, had very serious convictions in regard to the importance of coming to Christ chose instead to take the way of the world. Much against the wishes of her godly mother, she insisted on keeping company with a wild, hilarious crowd who lived only for the passing moments and tried to forget the things of eternity. Again and again, she was pleaded with to turn to Christ, but she persistently refused to heed the admonitions addressed to her. Finally, she was taken with a very serious illness. All that medical science could do for her was done in order to bring about her recovery, but it soon became evident that the case was hopeless and death was staring her in the face. She still was hard and uh, obstinate, and uh, when urged to turn to God in repentance, still... She did not repent, and uh, one night she woke up suddenly out of a sleep. This is right before she died, and frightened with a frightened look in her eyes, and and uh, she asked her mother who came to her aid. She said, "Mother, what does Ezekiel seven, eight, and nine say?" And her mother said, what do you mean, my dear? She replied that she had had a most vivid dream. She thought there was a presence in the room who very solemnly said to her, read Ezekiel 7, verses 8 and 9. Not recalling the verses in question, her mother reached for a Bible. As she opened it, her heart sank as she saw the words, but she read them aloud to the dying girl. These, this is those verses. Now I will shortly pour out my fury upon thee, and accomplish mine anger upon thee, and I will judge thee according to thy ways, and will recompense thee for all thine abominations. And mine eye shall not spare; neither will I have pity. I will recompense thee according to thy ways and thine abominations that are in the midst of thee. And you shall know that I am the Lord that smites. The poor sufferer, with a look of horror on her face, sank back on the pillow, utterly exhausted, and in a few moments, she was in eternity. Once more, it had been demonstrated that grace rejected brings judgment at last. That's from uh, Henry Ironside's book, Illustrations with Bible Truth. So I cited my, my source. See that? It's important to do Alright, so now we get to Zechariah chapter 6, okay? When I first read this, this vision, this is the seventh of eight visions that we're looking at. Of course, we've been studying, you know, all these visions right in a row. We've seen amazing truths. We've seen life-changing truths about walking in the Spirit and God be with us and God restoring and so many great things. And then we come to this vision. And some of the other visions were hard to understand at first, right? But last week we had some difficult visions and we worked through them and we saw that there was some truth and that there was, there was some sins in the camp. And, and we dealt with, we, we talked about that in the materialism and, and it was great. Okay, So I, I started studying this week and I was just lost, man. I was like, I got no idea what's going on here. And I've read it literally 50 times just reading it. And usually, I've been around the Bible a long time. Usually I get something. Oh yeah, this that okay. Something, okay. So I so I'm like, all right, I'm just I'm I'm broke as a joke here. I need to go to some outside help. So I started reading commentaries and as I started reading them None of them were really good at all. <laughs> None of them had any insight that I was like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. Some of them, you know, had some ideas. But basically, everyone disagrees on what the, what the actual interpretation of this vision is. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do? Am I just going to kind of brush over it and say, well, sometimes we can't understand Jesus. And uh, what was I going to say? You know, and I prayed. and And for me, I'm just taking you on my journey this week. It was it was really neat because I prayed and I, and I felt like God gave me something that we can we can learn from this passage and actually gave me quite a bit um, that I'm pretty excited about. And so um, let's dive in. Let's read it. And then you'll you'll see where we're going with it. OK, he says, I turned and raised my eyes and looked and behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains. And the mountains were made of bronze. The first chariot... Wait, where am I at? Yeah, the first chariot were red horses. With the first chariot were red horses. With the second chariot were black horses. With the third chariot were white horses. And with the fourth chariot were dappled horses, strong steeds. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are the four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. The one with the black horses is going to the north country, the white are going after after them, and the dappled are going toward the south country. Then the strong steeds went out, eager to go, that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, Go walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And he called to me and spoke to me, saying, See, those who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. You see my predicament, right? (laughs) I'm like, what is going on? Who are these horses? What is going on? So... I'm going to call attention to the last line in that in that vision because I think it has a bit of a key to help us understand what's going on here. And it says The ones who went to the North Country gave rest, had given rest to my spirit in the North Country. So God's spirit is only at rest when his when his enemies and the enemies of his people are judged when sin is judged. So what do you have going on here? Alright? Is you have the nation of Israel and they've just come back from Babylon and they're they're being established here. But there's all these other nations full of sin and idolatry around them. And even part of them they're, they're corrupted but he dealt with them last week, right? Because judgment starts in the house of God, right? Remember that verse in the New Testament. So, the last chapter, he talked about the sin in Israel's camp. He talked about their materialism, and it was a, it was a big deal. And it was this whole with the birds flying, the storks flying, the lady in the pot, and they took her out to battle. Anyway, it was a big long study. Get it last week. It was great. But now he's gonna he's talking about the the nations around Israel. These nations are pagan. They hate God. They are not believers. They worship idols, they worship demons and Satan, and they sacrifice their children. These are not good people, okay? Um, not believers. They don't want to want anything to do with God. And so what happens here is God sends out his spirit, or what's called here the four spirits of God, in picture form, to judge them. To judge them. And that so he goes out and, and it says that, he goes out and he judges the, the land of the north and then he has some other horses that go follow the land of the north and then he has some horses that go to the land of the south. Speaking of probably Babylon and Egypt, okay? I don't know the specifics of who these people were and what specifically happened here. Like, but apparently God's spirit wanted to judge some people so he judged some people. And that's the point of what we're going to be talking about. Is God is able to judge, and he will judge, and he's really good at judging. And he has to judge. And those things are what we're looking at. So I see some things in here that are really neat. It says here that at the very beginning, he turned open his eyes, and there was these four chariots coming from between two mountains. And these mountains were made of brass. Well, what did I say before? Brass symbolizes in the Bible... Judgment, okay? So that's where we get this whole foundation of what, we're, what this vision is about. This vision is about judgment. When I think of two things, two big mountains, I think of the two biggest mountains uh, this world has ever seen, and that's the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. These two mountains. And remember, last week it was even typified, wasn't it? We saw sins against God and sins against man. Last week, that's how God dealt with the nation of Israel. He said, you got sins against God, you're you're lying, you're perjuring, and you have sins against man. And that's how the two tablets of the Ten Commandments were divided. Sins against man, sins against God. So you have these two mountains. And the thing is, when you don't keep those Ten Commandments perfectly, judgment is required. And that's why these four chariots come out from between the two mountains, Right? It's starting to make sense to me. I'm starting to, hey, I'm starting to feel this. I'm starting to get an interpretation going. I'm starting to understand what God's heart is here. Because when you try to keep, keep the Ten Commandments, do you ever succeed? No. We've been studying. We studied through Galatians long enough. We went through the whole book and we saw that that legalism is only brings, it only brings a curse. It doesn't bring freedom. It doesn't bring joy. It brings judgment. Because that law is so perfect, it's a perfect picture of Jesus, but we're not Jesus. And so we fail, and so that failure to keep the law out of that failure comes these four horses, or these four chariots, with all these different colored horses. And so I thought in my mind, I'm like, okay, it's not too hard to, when you're familiar with the Word of God, to start to put some pieces together. And you know the book that gives us the most amount of pieces that that helps us understand everything? Book of Revelation, right? So you got to do this, turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. It's the last book in the Bible if you didn't know. So the Book of Revelation is just so supernaturally amazing. You got you got these images from the Old Testament that the Book of Revelation explains. It puts things together. And some people, they look at just the book of Revelation and they're like, Ah, it's got horses and, and beasts and, oh, I don't understand it. It's so hard to understand because they've never read the Old Testament. They've never read other parts of the Bible, the other prophets. And, and they don't remember that these are common used illustrations in the Bible. And the book of Revelation is, does a wonderful job of unlocking the, the meaning of these things. Okay, so when we get to Revelation chapter 6, we have these horses here, okay? So we're going to read now in chapter 6. It says, Now I saw the lamb open one of the seals, and I heard one of the four, li- four? 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 Mm, interesting. four living creatures, saying with a loud voice, Come and see. And so I looked, and behold, a white horse. And him who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given him, and he went out conquering, and to conquer So, they're given in a different order in the book of Revelation. But we have these same four colors, okay? So, I'm going to stop after each one and just give you a quick explanation. That first one, the white horse, pictures um, peace. But it's a false peace. And this this guy who goes out conquering and to conquer, he is the Antichrist. Okay? So... Next, we'll just go to the next one, the second seal. When he opened the second seal, I heard a living creature say, Come and see, another horse, fiery red, went out. And to him it was granted, uh, uh, to the one who sat on it, to take peace from the earth, and so people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. So war is the red horse. All right. When he opened the third seal, I heard a living creature say, Come and see, and I looked to behold a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, a quarter of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. So that says, that speaking of famine, the black horse, famine. Next. Then he opened the fourth seal, and I heard a, the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on him was Death. And Hades followed him. And power was given them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, hunger, and death. And by the beasts of the earth. So, this is crazy. This is crazy. So you have the same four colors of the horses. Now what's happening right at the beginning of Revelation chapter 6? Well, it's after Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 5, we see the rapture happened right at the beginning, and then this church is seen up in heaven, and you have everyone happy up in heaven, and then you have the beginning of a seven-year period of tribulation that starts right at the beginning of Revelation chapter 6, and it goes through chapter 19. And in, that, in, the, in this seven years of earth's history, what is going on? Judgment. Judgment. This is how God begins to pour out his judgment and it's it's pictured by these horses. And the ways that these horses are used by God shows us how judgment flows from God sometimes. And I think it's really cool for us. So, let's look at each one of these. I'm going to I'm going to go with the order that Zechariah gives us. Okay, and, uh, and so it's red first. Red is the first horse that he says. And so red was the horse in, in Revelation of war. And so um, war can be used by God as a form of judgment to judge sin. You might think, what? Yes, God can begin conflict among people as judgment for sin. Alright. In Revelation chapter thirteen, verse four, I'll read it to you. He says, So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So here's the statement in Revelation, they're like, Man, Satan, he's he's a bad dude. Someone's gotta take him out. But who's able? Well, the answer comes in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. I love it. It says, Now when I, op- I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So here you have Jesus coming out of heaven, riding a true, the true white horse, bringing true peace. But what he does is he's, he answers the question, who can make war against Satan? Jesus makes that war. He goes to war against Satan. So, I see here that God can use war, and God does use war to judge people. Not, I'm ta- not talking about just wars between countries, like if you have a war going on in Syria or Russia or something like that, I mean, Ukraine right now, and yes, that can be God's judgment, but what about just our lives personally? When we are having a war with someone, can that be God bringing judgment into our relationships? I don't know. Let's think about that. The next one is the black horse. That equals famine. Which is like a lack of resources or dryness. Revelation 18 and 8 says, Therefore her plagues will come, and in one day death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord who judges her. Part of the judgment on the uh, the Babylonian world uh, during the time of the end will be famine. So God brings famine as judgment as well. So you have debt, you have war. God can use that. You can have famine. Now what about us personally again? Okay, yeah, so I can get that there can be a famine in Africa or Colorado or California and it can be God's judgment. All right, I, it could be. But what about my life? Are there times where what about people's lives? Maybe not necessarily my life, but what about bobbed on the street can he just have dryness I'm not talking about he needs to put chapstick on but is there a spirit of dryness in his heart where he just he's just dry or lack of resources he's just tired and could that be a form of God's judgment the next one is the white horse or as we learn in Revelation the false peace that the antichrist brings or the seared conscience I should have a problem with the world right now but I don't in 1st Timothy chapter 4 it says now the spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies and hypocrisy having their own consciences seared as with a hot iron can that be a form of God's judgment someone's conscience being seared they no longer even see a problem with what they're doing anymore. Hmm. In first John chapter two, verse eighteen, it says, Little children, it is the last hour. Again, all these end times references to God's judgment. It is the last hour, he says, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come by which we know it is the last hour. So these Antichrists, these people who have no conscience, they, they think they have peace. But it's a false piece. And these Antichrists are a form of God's judgment as well. Hmm. And then you have the last one, the gray one, or the, the pale one, or the dappled one, whatever, however word you want to use. And it speaks of death. Death as God's judgment. God can just kill someone? Is that what you're saying? That God could just righteously kill someone and be okay. Lamentations 3.22 and 23 says, It is through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. Because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It is through His mercy that He doesn't just consume us. Wow. Wow. So judgment is coming with all these elements, I think. I think this gives us a picture of of many ways that God can exercise judgment in the world and no one can say anything about it. No one can do anything about it. And they can be mad, but they can't do anything about it. The different nations around Israel, God was going to judge as he determined and he sent out these spirits to do these different things because God can choose any way he wants to judge. God can choose to judge at any time he wants. But God is patient and God is merciful, as we've studied in the past. But this is a common question I get on the radio. Why did God judge the nations of Canaan as the children of Israel entered into the promised land? And why did God say, kill everyone, even the children, kill them? And that's a people say that, right? You got your Facebook friends, right? And they're, they're like, ha ha, I got you. How, why did God do that? What they don't understand is God's mercy and God's patience. Because those nations specifically that we were talking about and that as the nation of Israel was coming into the promised land, God had given them 400 years to repent. For 400 years, he stayed his hand of judgment. He waited to judge, judge them. To repent of their idolatry, their murders, their hatred. But they chose not to. He would have been justified to judge them after ten years, or five years, or one year, or one day. Or how about the moment they conceived in their heart to sin? Would he have been justified in judging their sin on that moment? Yes. In fact, I know someone who that happened to. And you do too. Satan remember his story. He was the worship leader up in heaven. Ah, Jesus is great. Jesus is awesome. I think I should be like God. Instantly, he was kicked out of heaven. And it says in Isaiah that he saw him fall as a lightning bolt out of heaven. Just cast out immediately. That's how quickly God can judge. And so if you're given one minute where God is just like, Oh, really? That's a lot of mercy from an omnipotent God who has all power. Wow. God has tremendous patience and mercy on the children of men. So God can judge. God is the judge. And here's the last part tonight. God must judge. He must. Was 9-11 God's judgment on America? I doubt it. (laughs) Honestly, personally, I doubt it. Because God's judgment, these, these horses, they're reserved for unbelievers. Unbelievers face God's judgment. What's the difference between believers and unbelievers? Aren't our sins just as bad as their sins? Yes. But there's a huge difference. Your sins and my sins, and everyone in here who believes our sins were already judged on the cross. Such a difference. So will you and I ever have the Spirit coming out with horses and chariots against us? No. That's why you and I will not be here during the tribulation. The best argument why pre-trib for the tribulation, that will be raptured away. We'll get to that in just a minute. When sin is judged, his spirit can be at rest. And that's what I see in this portion of Zechariah chapter 6. When sin is judged, God's spirit can be at rest. He must judge. Things do not get excused away. Sin has to be judged. No one gets away with anything. Every sin and unrighteous deed must be made right. A big part of restoration, which this this whole title of the series is Restoration Project, a big part of it is the judgment of the sin. The sin that wrecks things, the sin that hurt God's precious children, has to be fixed, has to be judged. God hates injustice. Because he is just, he hates, and stands against injustice. It makes us mad, like when you're on the phone with your bank and they are so unjust with their $15 overdraft fees or whatever and you're just like, you have righteous indignation inside you and hatred for your bank. And I see amens happening out there. We, we, as dirty, rotten sinners feel such righteous indignation indignation at sin that we see injustice, how much more do you think God feels about sin? About pedophiles and rapists and all the atrocities going on around the world. If we as sinners feel this anger about sin, how much more does a perfect God have righteous anger? About sin that he never intended for his children. Even the small things are important to God in judgment. In Proverbs eleven, it's almost like embarrassing to bring up such a small thing, but this is even a big deal to God in Proverbs chapter eleven, verse one, it says, Dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, he says. Dishonest scales are an abomination, but a just weight is his delight. You know, someone, okay, so you're at the gas station and you pump it, and let's say that whatever scales, I don't know what they use, it's some magic they use at the gas pump, but somehow they know how much. Well, if it's off by a couple cents, I think it's annoying. God is like, it's an abomination! Wow. That's like, he, he is intense about right and defending me. What, what was done to me? Wow. This is one of the attributes of God that's not understood as other ones. And this is related to his holiness. The reason why he's like this is because he's holy. So judgment is really holiness in action. If you ever want, you know, we sing, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. We have no idea what we're talking about. What we're really saying is, God, you judge and you're a great judge. Judgment is holiness in action. You can't get mad at God for punishing the wicked. The wicked get blamed for their own wickedness. That's how it works. So, in John 3.36, it says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. But he who does not believe, the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath. That's another word for judgment in action. The wrath of God, that anger that he feels, the reason why judgment comes, it says it abides on him if you don't believe. So these four spirits come out from the Ten Commandments, okay? And so there's judgment to follow. So if you don't believe in Jesus as your sacrifice for the Ten Commandments, then that judgment, it says, abides on you. That term abides, it it remains. You can't get away from it. You're going to have war. You're going to have famine. You're going to have death. You're going to have false peace. All these things are going to come upon you and abide on you. There's no getting away from it. So, in Psalm chapter 2, verse 12, he says, you, you guys know this verse, Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Man, kiss the son. This is a big deal. You know, you either love him, or his wrath will make you be will make you perish on the way when he just gets a little angry with you. It's a big deal. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is a common theme throughout Scripture. Romans 4.15, Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. So those two bronze mountains, it's a perfect picture. God bringing forth wrath. The law brings forth wrath. God is angry when people break the law. That's how it works. And then Revelation six sixteen, and and uh, said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For great is the day of his, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And here's the thing: is that God doesn't enjoy this. He doesn't enjoy having to bring judgment. In Ezekiel chapter 18, it gives us this story. The prophet Ezekiel spent some time developing this. And I'm just going to bring out two scripture, two verses to show you that. But in chapter 18, verse 23, he says, Do I have any pleasure at all in the, that the wicked should die? Says the Lord God. And not that he should turn from his ways and live. What a great thing. I mean, he... It's not like he's up in heaven saying, I can't wait to bring judgment. No. And then if you skip down to verse 32 of Ezekiel 18, For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. He's begging people to turn. He doesn't want to judge them. But God is just. But we come full circle now because God is also love. In Romans 5.9 it says, Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. God doesn't desire to, for you guys to have these horses and chariots chasing you around all your life. He will, if that's what you want. But if you're in Him, you're saved from that wrath. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't have any intention of making you guys feel His wrath. And in fact, this is the big point tonight, He would be wrong to make you feel His wrath. He would be wrong It would be unrighteous of him to punish you in any way with judgment. Now, he can discipline you. Oh, and he's good at that, right? Amen. But judgment is far different than discipline. He says he disciplines those he loves, his children. But judgment you will never face. Because in 1 John one nine we have the most beautiful scripture. It says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does that mean? It means, have you ever been scared of God's judgment? Have you ever been scared? Like, man, I... I really messed up, and I don't know if God's going to forgive me. You ever had that thought? I don't know if this time He's going to forgive me because this is the four hundredth time I've done this thing, and I'm, I'm full. I'm tired of myself. I hate myself right now, so I don't see how God could receive me back again. But look what it says: He is faithful and just to forgive us. Sins. That means if we confess our sins to Him and He did not forgive you, He would be unjust. He would be unjust. The perfect God would be unjust to not forgive someone who confessed their sins to Him. That, let that sink in. That any person who confesses their sin to Him must be forgiven. Why? Why? Because the judgment for that sin already happened on the cross. And can God judge twice? Well, that would mean that God made a mistake the first time. Or he didn't completely judge the first time. And that doesn't happen. See, back in our text, it says his spirit is at rest. His spirit is at rest when his judgment is accomplished. He's just, man, He's just happy with you. You confess your sin? Great. We're good. We're all good. You mean you're not angry at me? No. Have you ever thought that He could just send an angel to smite you? Or lightning was just your next step? It is actually impossible for that to happen. It is actually impossible. I love it that it says His Holy Spirit is at rest when it comes to the judgment of your sins. There is no more judgment to ever happen when it comes to your name. There will never be another judgment. Except you'll get reward someday for the good things you did. That'll be great. But all your sin, it's gone. It was perfectly accomplished. When Jesus said, it is finished, it was finished. It was absolutely finished. So his judgment, there you go. First half of Zechariah chapter 6 his spirit is at rest when he judges. Amen? Alright, Jesus, thank you so much for being willing to take the judgment that we so righteous, we, we deserved it. And Lord, it's just a perfect balance of your love, Lord God, that you would be able to satisfy your judgment in our life by sending these horses upon your own son. By sending your spirit, Lord, you, you judge sin upon the cross. And Lord, we, we can only say thank you and live our lives in glory, just giving glory to you. God, I pray for each person here, Lord, that Lord we would be bold in communicating this truth of your great love and your great judgment. Your great justice and holiness. How you can maintain your holiness, Lord God, and still call me sinless. That's unbelievable. So amazing. Lord, we praise you. We worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.